Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Tuesday morning, the 13th of February. Good morning. With much debate and discussion from now till 11am, this is Michael Reed on LMFM. The Dáil will debate a Sinn Féin private member's motion today that calls on the government to scrap the TV licence and with immediate effect. If adopted, the motion would mean that RTE and other media would be funded in the future by the Exchequer. And for anyone who is breaking the law right now by not having a TV licence, Sinn Féin wants an amnesty, so there would be no fine, no consequence at all. In fact, Sinn Féin is looking for all law-abiding people in this country, not just to support lawbreakers, but they want those who abide the law to pay the bills of those who do not. Let's speak to local Sinn Féin TD, for me, these to Darren O'Rourke, who's on the line. Good morning to you, Darren. Thanks indeed for joining us on the programme today. What in God's name is Sinn Féin thinking of with this proposal? I think it's, it's an important proposal, um, and it's not just that, that Sinn Féin are saying it, uh, it's others uh, with an interest in the media, and particularly with an, an interest in public service broadcasting. Well, I don't think anybody service. else is saying that we let people go scot-free for not paying for their TV licence, for breaking the law, in other words. No, I, I think it's a look. It's a, it's, it's a reasonable uh, point that that you're making. I think for anybody that comes with a proposal, and Sinn Féin's proposal is to scrap the TV license. That's consistent with the the recommendations of the Future of Media Commission. Um, the next question um, for for anybody uh, in government or otherwise to, to answer is, what do you do for those people who haven't paid? And we are proposing, and we're. Well, you find uh, them, do you not, or prosecute them? Uh, I, I mean, uh, what about all no, of the people who did pay? You know, I, I think, and, and look, the, the situation is, like, we're not advocating that people uh, don't pay their TV licence, although people are voting with their feast, they're, they're, they're drawing their own conclusions. You're saying there should be no consequence for not paying your TV licence? Well, it's it's a question of... Um, I mean, you have to have a TV licence by law, and Sinn Féin is saying uh, there should be no consequence for breaking the law. Yeah, I, 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 what what we're saying is that there's going uh, that we're proposing a change of policy, a change of approach that puts public ser- service broadcasting on a far okay. more sustainable footing. And should like, there be a conse- to- should, should there be a consequence if you don't have a driver's license or a hunting license or a fishing license or a license to sell alcohol or 
uh, an import licence or uh, we could go on forever with the amount of licences that are, are required by law in order to carry out certain activities. If you have a TV licence you or a TV set, you must have a TV licence by law. That is the law. Uh, and you're suggesting that people break the law. No, no, I'm, I'm not suggesting people break the law. Well, what, you're suggesting that saying, if they do, there'll be no consequence for it and that other people pay their bills. If, if there's a change of policy. If there's a change of policy, what we're saying... So you're, you're left with the... So what we're, what we're proposing is that we would scrap the TV licence. So in the future, there would be no TV licence and there'll be an obligation on nobody to pay a TV licence. And there's lots of, of people making the same case because it's outdated. No, well, because you are saying that, but you're also saying that there should be an amnesty now for people who have not paid. No, no, Michael, we're not saying there should be an amnesty now. We're saying there should be an amnesty if the policy is changed and the TV license is scrapped. And that's very different than saying don't pay your TV license or uh, well, you're ignore, saying scrap ignore the li- your obligations. Well, you're saying scrap the license with immediate effect and you're saying introduce a legal amnesty from prosecution for those who have not paid their yeah. license so, fee. So, so that is so saying that there should be no consequence for people who have not paid already. If there's a change in policy and if the TV license is scrapped, and is there, well, well, is there well, a comparison? Do you not believe Michael? that there will? Do you, do you not believe that there will be? A, is, that, is that not the point of the motion that there would be a change of policy? Uh, and that is your proposal. You can't isolate one part of the proposal. Uh, it's all part of the same proposal. In other words, you want to scrap the license fee and put an amnesty in place for people who haven't paid their TV license. What, what, what did the state do with, with water charges, Michael? When people people pay their water charges when there was an obligation on them to pay water charges. Very many people didn't pay their water yes. charges. In 2017, when, when the policy was scrapped due to huge public opposition, were those people pursued who hadn't, who hadn't paid their, their, their water charges? No, they weren't. They got an amnesty. It's the type of thing that happens when you have a policy change. Until a lot of people felt time, very aggrieved about that as well. Those who paid felt very aggrieved about that and felt it was an injustice and that they paid other people's bills. So, um, like, un- until such time as there is a policy change, and I, uh, my expectation is that government aren't going to support the Sinn Féin motion tonight, but what is very clear, and I, I think there's, there's two separate issues here, Michael. One is the future funding model for public service broadcasting, for RTE and for all of the other outlets that, that do very good uh, public service broadcasting. They're not on a sustainable footing. People are already voting with their feet. So the Commission, and, and it's, it's not Sinn Féin that are driving people away from, from paying their TV licence. People have come to that decision themselves. Um, evasion has been for a long time, for, for well over a decade now, and this is the findings of the Commission on Future uh, uh, of, of Media, um, found that evasion is you know high by european comparisons about 15 percent yeah and it's it's impossible to police because people live in apartments and places where it's impossible and it's probably underestimated Mm -hmm. um and and it's 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 increasing it's Mm. increasing because people are looking at what's going on in in rte they're Mm. they're you know they're they're seeing they're they're you know losing confidence in in public service broadcasting mm. and and I think that's a I challenge for I all know, of us. That's I know, and I, I, I don't think there's any argument with that. But it, it seems to me that you just don't get it from the perspective of people listening to us this morning who have paid for a TV. I'm one of them. For, for, I'm, I'm who have one paid of them, for Michael. TV license. I, I do. I, I I fully get that perspective. Sure, I'm one of them. Um, yeah, but but uh, are they not monks to have paid? I mean, no. No, no. The, the the point is, the point is that we're you're left with a decision. So I mean, we're we all could, annoyed. We're all annoyed about RTE, but most people have paid for their TV license. 
Well, and and and, and that's what we're saying they, they they should do because you have a, you have an obligation to do it. But very many people aren't paying for the TV license, and the question then is, are we going to use? Uh, our guardy, the court services, uh, to pursue those people indefinitely into the future. And we're saying that that is not a good use of, of state resources when we believe they, they could be doing uh, something more useful with, with, with their time. But um, we need to be fair, do we not? We do, Michael. Um, and again, going back to that comparison in, in relation to water charges, you're left with a decision. Like a government that introduces this measure is left with a decision. Mm. Either uh, introduce an amnesty or pursue those people indefinitely into the future. And we haven't, uh, um, you know, 13,000 people were brought before the courts last year. Um, you know, it's, it's offensive in many cases. Uh, the people are brought before the courts, whilst we look at, you know, white-collar criminals and, you know, executives in RT and elsewhere mm. that, you know, for, for, for the money we're talking about, um, uh, the, you know, the 160 euros that, that people haven't yeah, paid, you're, 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 and, maybe, and maybe many of them aren't in a position to pay. You're arguing, um, though, that two wrongs make a right. No, I'm, I'm saying... I'm you're saying, you're that saying I'm, because of all of these um, people in RTE, and uh, I, I don't know if there was any criminality, but you, there was uh, misuse of funds, let's say, or money wasn't spent the way people would have expected it to have been spent, or there was lavish spending, or whatever way you put it. But, but while people are annoyed about that, that doesn't justify people not obeying the law and paying well, for a TV licence if they have a TV set. Well, well, and like like time will tell. I I, I think um, my sense would be people would understand uh, the approach that Sinn Féin are, are proposing here. Um, people, you know, are law abiding and they're paying their their TV licenses, myself included. But I recognise that um, a government of the day would with with uh, uh, by introducing a measure like scrapping the 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 TV license has a decision to make. Either, on the one hand, pursue those people indefinitely into the future using the resources of the state, or B, introduce a, an amnesty. And, and Sinn Féin is saying, clearly, um, we, we propose the, 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 the latter. We believe that it just it, it, uh, it, it makes more sense in the context of um, okay. the, so the, what the does use that of mean? resources. But, but what does that mean in effect? Uh, I mean, obviously they haven't paid €160, Euro, uh, but that €160 Euro is necessary to fund RTE apart from anybody else. In fact, that €160, if we all paid it, uh, wouldn't be enough, according to RTE. So somebody has to pay the €160. So uh, the person uh, who hasn't got a TV licence has managed not to pay €160. Somebody else has paid uh, their own €160, plus they've paid a portion of the bill that somebody else hasn't, uh, or they've decided not to pay, uh, and then you have uh, this proposal from Sinn Féin saying, so what, let, the, let, let, let them walk free. Uh, well, that, well, actually, that's that's actually, not very fair at all, no, is it? No, no, well, well, well actually, actually by, because you can look at it a different way, by scrapping the TV licence, and the TV licence itself isn't fair, isn't fair. There's uh, significant exemptions. There's significant evasion. Um, it's it's a flat rate. Um, you know, it's it's uh, it's avoided legitimately by many people who don't have have TVs. Um, people are who are on the household benefits package mm. have it have it covered for them. So it, so it is in itself isn't fair. What is fair is progressive taxation system and funding through uh, revenue, funding through the, the state exchequer. So, so by scrapping the TV licence itself, 
you're introducing a much fairer regime. Um, and, 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 you know, that's, I suppose, a counterpoint to your uh, argument in relation to the introduction of an amnesty, which I, I appreciate. You know, it's, uh, there are those people who will, who will benefit from it and, you know, strategically might avoid the, the, the paying their TV licence fee and avail of an amnesty should, should such an amnesty be int- introduced. But um, I, I think from the options that a government have in terms of pursuing people indefinitely using the resources of the state and the court services, I don't think it's a good okay. use of, of, of state resources. Uh, and what about uh, the lawbreakers who didn't have a TV licence and were brought to court? Uh, you're saying in your motion that's about 13,000 uh, people uh, in the last year alone. Um, should uh, they be reimbursed if they paid a fine and had to buy a TV licence? No, no, they, sh- they shouldn't. What we're saying is that is- fair? What, what, what we're saying is the system that, that uh, is in place at the minute is yeah. you're obliged to pay your TV licence. Some yeah. people avoid paying their TV licence. Some of that group are pursued through the courts yeah. and they're, they're fined and prosecuted. That's the system in place. We're proposing that the mm. government should today scrap the TV licence. But that, that fine could have people. been a thousand euro, couldn't it? Or, uh, and the 160 euro, or maybe they had to pay 2,000 euro for failing a, a second time or maybe spent yeah. a day in prison. Yeah. I, I mean, is that fair that you don't reimburse those people who broke the law uh, and let other people go scot-free for doing exactly the same thing. But what, but what we're saying here is that we're introducing a new regime, uh, Michael. That's what we're looking to introduce. Um, and, you know, people have lived under the current regime and continue to live under it. And, you know, as but I said... But lawbreakers are the ones who benefit well, well, 13,000 of them didn't benefit last year. They brought before the court. Some of them spent time in jail. Some of them were, were hit with, with heavy fines. And that risk is over everybody that doesn't pay their, their TV licence. And people uh, need to be very aware of that. And that's why, you know, we're certainly not recommending that people don't pay their TV licence. But what we are saying is, and we're not on our own in relation to us, that the current model is completely unsustainable. Um, the, the Commission on the Future of Media said exactly that. Their recommendation was that the that there would be increased exchequer funding and the TV licence because it in and of itself is unfair, should be scrapped and a new regime that is fair should be introduced. Okay, well, this debate will go to the floor of uh, the Dáil Chamber this evening. We'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed, as always, for joining us. Darren O'Rourke, Sinn Féin TD for Mead East. One comment uh, with us so far about this from Sharon, who says... Oh my God, Michael Reid, you sound ridiculous. TV licence has always been a farce used to overpay wannabes and uh, their click in RTE. We stopped paying and won't pay. Thanks uh, for your message, Sharon. I suppose in the interim, the rest of us will continue to pay for your TV licence because somebody has to pay for it. Uh, but you've uh, let us know your position and thank you for doing so. Our phone number is 041-983-2000. Text or WhatsApp 86 658 Email Michael at lmfm.ie. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Uh, as you've been hearing on LMFM's news, uh, Biden has uh, 
really caused a lot of concern at Tara Mines. Uh, It's um, saying that if the mine cannot return to profitability, it'll have to close. Let's speak to John Regan, SIP2 sector organiser. And a very good morning to you, John. Thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. The Business Post has reported that Belayden posted its financial results for the fourth quarter of uh, the year on the 8th of uh, this month. It shows revenues have declined to 1.849 million euro for the three months. Uh, the operating profit is down to 87 million euro. Um, where's the problem with profitability, do you think? Uh, look, at you, it can't be anything else but losses when you close a mine down and it's been closed for uh, you know 213 days. Uh, the revenues are just not happening because there's no production. So, um, you know, it's it's no great surprise to any of the workers that the company would be reporting losses. Uh, what's disappointing is that a company would come out uh, in, in, in Stockholm and make an announcement that the mine might close permanently. Uh, that's not uh, helping what we've been engaged in for the last few weeks mm, through the WRC. Is it losses or, or less profit? Well, that's the whole vagueness of the report. There's very little uh, in the report uh, about Tara Mines, only sound bites is what I would see it as, uh, and messages to be sent to everybody that uh, if you don't get your act together, uh, this company will close. And, you know, that's that's what the company has been doing, uh, you know, since the mine was announced. They did it before they went into care of maintenance. They made statements, uh, you know, to the national media, and they're still at it. They're not listening to us. Mm. Um, say that that's not the way to do business. Is this However, a is this a Godfather type of offer you can't refuse uh, comments that we're hearing from Belayden? Look at Michael. You can put labels on it all. At the end of the day, this this company is engaged with us at the moment, and we're looking to uh, stay engaged with them. Uh, we have had five conciliation conferences. We've spent sixty hours around the table. And some progress has been made and we expect to return to the um, WRC in the coming days. And that's where our focus is on. Uh, it just couldn't be left that the company would come out and the CEO to make a statement of that nature without us making some sort of response to it. And that's what we've done. Mm. Uh, we've made it quite clear to the company it's unhelpful. And when we meet with the local management, um, whenever that is, there's no date set at the moment. But uh, we're pretty sure we're going back to the WRC and uh, we'll be saying to them that, you know, again, for the umpteen time we have said uh, comments 2,000 miles away is not the thing to be doing, uh, particularly when they're unhelpful uh, comments and that the company have been invited in. We've invited them in for six months, the parent company representative. Yeah. And they're not coming in. They're not coming in, but they're making the sound bites that they want to make. Okay, but for the workers who are 2,000 miles away, uh, who uh, have been looking at a voluntary redundancy package, are you concerned that that might seem more attractive now, uh, given what has been said? Uh, and this threat that now hangs over the mine? Well, look at Michael. There is um, uh, an absolute acceptance of the, the tonnage and the volume of uh, lead and zinc coming out of the mine is going to drop. And along with that, uh, employment numbers is going to drop. It's a question of how far down that will drop. And we're hoping that we'll get an agreement to actually have a very 
considered way of dealing with that. And obviously, people that are out there for the last 213 days uh, have an interest in exiting the mine because their lives have moved on. Yeah. Some people have been uh, lucky enough to probably get employment. Others haven't. So there's a mixed bag of how people would react to a voluntary redundancy package. But there's one thing absolutely certain. There'll be no compulsory redundancy. Right. Uh, that report, the Business Post, also says Tara Mines is uh, uh, working with a, an operating loss of $13 million a quarter. If the mine was operational, would the losses be as great? Obviously not. I would uh, argue that the market has bounced back somewhat. Uh, equally, the whole energy side of things has significantly improved. Inflation has reduced. So all the things that the market was problematic in, in to make the company make the decision to close the mine have all bounced back in a favourable way. So again, if they'd have accepted our proposals, which is now firmly on the table, mm. for reopening the mine, our proposals could have prevented that closure and indeed... The, the it's speculation on their behalf on what would be what's what could be lost. Whereas it's the same for us, we'd be speculating that money could have been made had the mine stayed open. Last time I spoke to you, John, I think you were saying um, something to the effect that uh, you believe that the company is playing the long game here in that they're trying to change the terms and conditions of the workers in Tara Mines and if they're successful in doing that, that their objective is that there be long-term savings so there may be this short-term hit but in the long run uh, they'll come out all the better do you think that this ties into that theory that uh, you presented that time? Yeah, I don't, I, I can't, you can't but believe that to be the case because um the mine has a life of 40 years in the new Tara Deep. And um, with the way the proposal was presented to us um, and, and that we had to reject it was because they were tearing up all our terms and conditions of employment, hard-fought terms and conditions that has delivered. Like the workers over that 40 years have contributed a hell of a lot of profits into the company. I can't remember in over 20 plus years of dealing with the company uh, a year that they actually, I can only remember one year that they had a loss. Um, so they've been making profits a long, long time uh, for the group. And that is, uh, you know, a huge factor that, uh, again, Michael Staffis uh, ignored mm. uh, and didn't and chose not to congratulate the workers for what all they have contributed. He looked at the negative. So we're not, we're, look at, again, uh, we are uh, hoping that we will get this mine open sooner rather than later. And uh, I believe the company are, uh, are behind that as well locally. They have said it to us that they would actually, <clears throat> excuse me, they would have uh, accepted. Um, and if we can do an agreement earlier, then the mine will open even earlier than they had envisaged, which is uh, the first quarter instead of the second quarter. Okay, well, let's hope so. Uh, John, while you're with us, just a a separate issue, uh, if I can ask you about construction, because there seems to be plenty of jobs in construction. In fact, you just can't get the staff, uh, as the saying goes. Uh, In order to rectify that, uh, the government has launched a €750,000 campaign overseas to try and bring workers back to Ireland. Uh, I'm sure that's something that uh, you'd support, uh, although there is this question about people coming back to construct buildings in this country and where they're going to live. Yeah, look, it's welcome that that money has been made available and it's badly needed, I might add, because this industry 
needs to be uh, making itself more attractable to young people, both male and females, to come into the industry. The reality is um, the, the enforcement side of things is very weak and there's a lot of uh, self-employment, uh, bogus self-employment uh, going on in the industry, along with many other industries. But there seems to be a reluctance by uh, previous governments and this government to actually put in some, uh, to bolster uh, inspectors uh, and resource that in a, in a far more uh, aggressive way than they currently are. We currently have more dog wardens than we have labour inspectorate um, personnel right. on the ground. My They're God. just not there. Wow, my God. So, you know, construction will struggle. Uh, equally, construction has a label that you might have a job today and you won't have one tomorrow. That's not attractable either. The main employers and main contractors in construction need to start hiring directly. It's all done by semi, uh, by uh, subcontracting mm-hmm. and agency work, which is again unattractable. It's not able. Workers can't, uh, you know, provide a living and plan for, uh, you know, buying houses, which is all part of the construction end of things, uh, because of the uncertainty of their income. It's just not. It's so, it's an area that the government needs to really uh, tackle and make sure that the even the minimum standards, the SEO construction uh, rates of pay are minimum. They have a pension and a sick pay scheme in it, and uh, they're not monitored. There's nobody policing it other than ourselves uh, as trade union officials. When we go onto sites, we find all sorts of uh, non-compliance happening. So. This is uh, an area that, yes, the 750 million um, uh, investment by the government would be very helpful, but I think they need to start looking at uh, the whole uh, inspectorate side of things. Okay, John, thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. John Regan, SIP2 sector organiser there. Now, some comments about the TV licence. Peter in Dundalk uh, WhatsApping us saying uh, the government should refund the licence fee, I presume, to everybody. Thank you for that. Uh, Tom in touch of this saying, what about people like myself, Michael? I don't have RTE on my TV, so why should I pay for something that I don't want? Thanks, uh, as I say, Tom, uh, for that. Uh, Another message about the TV licence text that uh, comes to us uh, from Colm, who says, people need to realise how unrealistic a party Sinn Féin is. They think money grows on trees. They'll crucify everyone who works in the country if there's any jobs left after they close every factory with corporate tax. They say what people like to hear, but reality is a different story. Column says they're in cloud cuckoo land, the Irish version of Trump. Mag Y in touch saying, Michael, as far as I can remember, when the water charges were abandoned, the people who did pay got their money back. So an amnesty for TV licence should mean everyone who paid gets their money back as well. Another Sinn Féin disaster, says Magwai. Thank you indeed uh, for your message to 086 658 Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's talk about illegal dumping and littering. Fianna Fáil Senator Malcolm Byrne joins us. A very good morning to you. Thanks, uh, Malcolm, for your time with us uh, as always. Uh, like the fellow said, do you want the good news or do you want the bad news? Let's start with the bad news if we can. How much do we spend as a country every year cleaning up after other people? Uh, good morning, Michael. Good morning to your listeners. Uh, well, I carried out a survey in 2021 of every local authority in the country. Uh, and cumulatively, uh, right across Ireland, 
local authorities spend between 90 and 100 million euro a year um, cleaning up after illegal dumping, littering, uh, fly tipping. So um, people who just decide, you know, Mm. they're rubbish, they're not going to dispose of it properly, we're going to, you know, just throw it somewhere, uh, dump Mm. it somewhere. Um, That's That's an incredible amount of money. Yeah, and and you can easily put that into perspective, uh, whether it's uh, to do with overcrowded classrooms or waiting lists in hospitals or crime or whatever. A hundred million euros is a lot of money in anybody's book. So that's the bad news. Uh, what's the good news? Well, finally, um, I know I've spoken with you about uh, this for a while. Um, we've got to a situation where the regulations have now been signed by Minister Rashid Smith that will allow local authorities, including Lowell County Council, Mead County Council, uh, to use, in line with data protection regulations, CCTV, drones, and other technology uh, to be able to catch some of these environmental criminals. Mm. Um, up, up until now, local authorities could use this technology, um, but because of GDPR, uh, there, were, there were quite a number of loopholes which, if somebody was caught by CCTV, they could have challenged it in the court. Um, there's been a lot of work done with the Data Protection Commission and with others, uh, the delay was the Local Government Management Association was preparing this code following on from the legislation last year. Minister Sheen Smith has now signed it into law. Um, so every local authority this week will be getting a copy of those regulations, but certainly the chief executives will already have been aware uh, of what was coming. So local authorities now know the codes they need to put in place so that they can use this technology to catch those environmental criminals, those who are you know, engaging in legal dumping and fly tipping, uh, which is something, as, as, as you know, it causes a lot of annoyance uh, to tidy towns, groups, to development associations. I, I know from talking to local councillors in, in my own party, Fianna Fáil, but indeed in all parties and none, uh, this is a real bugbear for them that the local authorities don't have the powers. Uh, but the, the, uh, the codes are now in place, so I would just hope that local authorities will use that uh, and will we'll start to target and catch some of these Well, people. there's little black spots uh, everywhere in the country, isn't there? And they're, I suppose, uh, called litter black spots because you'll always find litter there because, uh, and this is the important part of it all, people believe they can dump there and get away with it. Nobody will see them. But uh, here's an opportunity now to catch them red-handed. Yeah, and uh, the technology is there. Um, I mean, people who've seen CCTV or the quality of drone footage now will know, you know, how good it is at being able to identify people or identify vehicles uh, and so on. It has to be done uh, in a way that protects, you know, um, the rights of, of, of individuals as well, so that the data that's gathered is not misused. Um, but what the, the Act and the Codes put in place are the necessary safeguard measures to ensure um, that, you know, if you are engaged in an environmental crime, uh, that can be used, uh, the, the, the evidence that's gathered by the CCTV or drones can be used in court against you. Mm. Now, we would hope, look, you, you'd hope that this would act as a deterrent, um, that those who are engaged in this type of behaviour would just cop on and stop. Um, but, you know, we've got to equip environmental officers uh, with all of the tools to be able to catch these people because it's not just the, you know, the financial cost that we talked about, Michael. There's a huge environmental cost. Uh, you know, if somebody dumps 
white goods, a fridge or something, and some, some of that leaks into the soil or to the water table, that's damaging. Mm. It's damaging to uh, to animals and to livestock. Uh, you know, if, yeah. if a cow starts to, you know, get around in a bag of rubbish, that's uh, potentially damaging. Mm. But also, uh, as we all know, the wonderful work that's done by tidy towns groups and development groups, and where it's undone by a very small group of people who just don't have respect for our community. Mm, I mean, it's always the same. I think uh, with a lot of issues, it's always just a small group of people ruining it for everybody else. And the issue with white goods, fridges uh, and uh, so on, uh, is so senseless because they can be recycled for nothing or at least the cost into the recycling centre. Uh, but what about privacy? Are, are there any questions about privacy? Um, if you're going to have cameras in an area, should there be signs to indicate that you may be on camera? Yeah, so 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 these, this is all provided for within within the code. Um, local authorities, some local authorities had been using CCTV and drones before, but they they didn't have the necessary safeguards because what 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 we don't want to create is a surveillance society, you know, where every action that we're doing is is monitored. Um, what the code now puts in place is is that any of the data gathered, um, it can only be used for the purposes of evidence. Uh, you know that that may be brought to court in the case of a crime. So, so a bit similar to you know some of the public CCTV systems that we have in our towns and cities, it's a similar type of provision. So our data privacy, you know, which is very important, uh, you know, that that is protected. Um, but if you're involved in a crime, if you're dumping uh, or if you're fly tipping. Uh, and you're caught on camera, that evidence that's gathered could be used in court against you. Okay, well, let's hope it it helps clean up our our cities, towns and villages and indeed the countryside for that matter. Thank you indeed for joining us on the programme today. Fianna Fáil Senator Malcolm Byrne. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, the United Nations 17 Sustainable Development Goals are a set of targets which has been adopted by countries who are members of uh, the United Nations to achieve a better and more sustainable future for all. Yesterday, the CSO published its data on uh, poverty, environment and financial assistance uh, for Ireland. Uh, the number one goal, by the way, is poverty. Let's speak to Tricia Keelty, who's Head of Social Justice with uh, the Society of St. Vincent de Paul. And a very good morning to you, Tricia, and thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. You're probably not surprised uh, at uh, the increase in consistent poverty. Uh, the CSO says that it, it was 53 percent in 2022. This is uh, according to the survey on income and living conditions. But that rate of 5.3 percent uh, has gone up from 4% the previous year. That's a, a staggering increase, is it not? Yes, that's right. Um, it really is a, a dramatic increase in consistent poverty. And I suppose when we say consistent poverty, um, it's defined as living below 60% of average income and experiencing basic deprivation. So that means going without things like nutritious food, adequate heating, um, suitable clothes, things like that. And I suppose given the cost of living crisis that really came to bear in 2022, it's not surprising that we are hearing more people are going without those basic necessities. And that would really reflect what SVP is seeing on the ground Mm. um, right through last year as well. But in effect, it's a 25% increase. You know, uh, it's a 1% increase, but 1% to 4% is 25%. Just 25% more people, in other words, who are are in that situation. I, I think that's beyond belief. 
Yeah, and I think if you, if you look at the, the deprivation figures and you look at it in terms of population numbers, um, it's over 900,000 people who are experiencing this kind of poverty. Um, and that's huge um, given, given our population size and things like that. So really, I think um, it just underlines the importance of um, government to really mm. focus on the issue of poverty and put in place measures um, to, to prevent it and um, overall address it. But and what about there it? has been... Sorry. No, I'm sorry. What about all the, the the measures the government did put in place? Uh, why were they not as effective as you'd hoped they'd have been? I mean, there was increases uh, in the welfare rates, uh, help with uh, energy bills and uh, different measures like that. Uh, but we, we see this dramatic increase in the amount of people in consistent poverty. Yeah, and I suppose what we've been saying really over the, the last number of years in terms of government support is that those one-off measures and that extra help um, did obviously help people um, keep the lights on and keep the heating on. But just given the rate of inflation um, and the price increases, particularly on energy, um, they just didn't match that rate of inflation in terms of welfare payments, um, increases in the minimum wage and support there through fuel allowance. So we still have a gap between what people needs to live and what the overall costs are and I suppose that's really kind of the key issue mm. and that's why we are seeing people really um, having to struggle to pay, pay the bills and um, put food on the table for their families um, and that's been reflected in, in our experience. Yeah, and inflation, the last while. inflation is starting to level out um, about 3-4% now isn't it um, but I take it prices won't come back down. Well, I suppose we, it is, we're feeling a bit more hopeful um, this, this year now as we go into 2024. Obviously, prices, um, energy prices are coming down. But as you say, they're, they're not going to go back to where they were in 2020. So they're still going to be um, more expensive. It's going to cost you more to heat your home and um, also put food on the table. Again, we are seeing prices come down small, a small bit, but inflation still, still remains at a high level. Um, so really, we, we need to see that the, our income supports catch up um, and what we'd like to see is that our social welfare system and our minimum wage is actually benchmarked against what the real cost um, in Ireland is to live um, so that people can afford the essentials, that people aren't going without um, and people aren't cutting back on what they need to, to live a dignified life. Mm. And can you do that on a basic welfare rate? No, at the moment it's it's below the poverty line and below what you need to meet a minimum standard of living. Um, and I suppose the government are looking at um, benchmarking social welfare. So we think that would be a really, really positive move. Um, it would give people certainty to plan for the future. It would help address poverty levels, help bring those levels of poverty back down. Um, and I suppose also we've seen a particular focus on um, child poverty. So it's not only about income support, it's also about investing in services so that people can afford um, things like education, housing. Um, they're the big ones that we see at the moment. Um, so today, obviously, we saw that the, the Minister for Education, um, for, sorry, for Social Protection, is um, bringing forward the measure to uh, ensure child benefit is paid until um, children are, are still in school and over the age of 18. Um, and that's a really important measure. We're also seeing free school books being introduced. All those make a difference. So it's really about ensuring that the social protection system is adequate, that work pays and that um, services are invested in to, to reduce those out-of-pocket expenses for families. OK. Uh, getting housing, uh, let alone affording it, uh, is a problem for so many people in, in this country. Uh, and that's to do, undoubtedly, with supply 
but uh, it still leaves people in this dreadful situation where if they do find somewhere suitable, they can't uh, afford it. Uh, you hear that time and again, I'm sure, in St. Vincent de Paul. Yeah, that's a, that's a huge issue at the moment um, and has been for the last number of years. Now, we are seeing more social housing come become available and we also have uh, a model of cost rental, which is lower rental property for, for people who are on low to mid incomes. So we are seeing an improvement in, in that regard. But really, for p- people who are maybe dependent on the housing assistance payment um, who need to rent through the private rent sector, it's really, really hard to find a property that's within the limits of that payment. Um, because rents are so high. So people really are left with very little option. And of course, we're seeing homelessness increase um, significantly as well in the last year, as well as poverty. So that's a huge concern for us as well. Uh, As I mentioned earlier on, Tricia, of the 17 UN Sustainable Development Goals, ending poverty is the top goal. It's the top priority, that there would be no poverty. Is that possible? Uh, is there anywhere in the world where there is no poverty? It certainly is possible. It's certain, so, certainly something that we can strive for. And for us, really, it's about ensuring that people have what they need to meet. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. You should celebrate yourself every day. But some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Their physical, social and psychological needs. Um, and that totally is achievable. You know, some of the um, Scandinavian countries, such as Finland and um, Sweden, have traditionally very, very low rates of poverty. And that's because they have a system of social protection that is adequate and they've got really good public services. 
So it is absolutely mm. possible. Um, and I suppose it's really holding that ambition to ensure that everybody can meet that minimum standards to, to live with dignity. Mm. But it's a decision that you make as a society, isn't it? I mean, what you're talking about there is a distribution of wealth. There's probably uh, more wealth in this country than in Finland and Sweden, for that matter. Uh, given how this is one of the wealthiest countries in the world. But we make decisions as a society, as a state, our our government decides what it does with the money it collects and how it collects money. Uh, And in those countries, generally, people pay a higher rate of income tax. Yes, that's right. And it is all about choices and what we value and and what we prioritise. And it is about ensuring that we do have an adequate um, taxation revenue collection that can fund public services, that can address um, poverty, that can address income inequality, wealth inequality. It really is a whole system approach to it that needs to be implemented. And I suppose we do have a very strong commitment from the Taoiseach, from the the highest office in Ireland, to uh, address child poverty and he's set up a child poverty unit within his own department and that's really important because you need to have that political accountability you need it driven from from the top to ensure that those decisions really are very much grounded in what is needed to address poverty and to keep it as a priority as we navigate different economic and and social shocks that have happened over the last couple of years. Okay, Tricia, thank you indeed for joining us this morning. Tricia Keelty, Head of Social Justice with the Society of St. Vincent de Paul. Now let me bring you some more of the comments coming to us today. Jim in Navin has been texting and he says, Michael, RTA should stop giving airtime to ambassadors such as the Israeli ambassador or the Russian ambassador who condone the slaughter of innocents in their madness to grab more territory. Shame on them and the USA who are supplying Israel with arms. Hypocrisy on their part, says Jim in Navin. Thank you indeed, uh, Jim, for that. You're reminding me of uh, Joseph Burrell. A uh, good point, though. Uh, Betty Daly in touch saying, Michael, if the government stopped 250 a week from everybody who's working or stopped it out of the people who never worked a day in their lives, that could help to pay for a TV licence. And of all of that money, uh, that they pay for barristers and solicitors and free legal aid for offenders with hundreds of offences uh, was saved. I'm sure that would cover a multitude of TV licences for that matter, it says Betty Thanks for that, uh, Betty. Uh, Somebody else in touch saying, Michael, maybe you should have had a rep from all parties on to debate the TV licence fiasco. All singing from the same hymn sheet you'll find, but keeping quiet about it. Let Sinn Féin take the flack. What's new, says our caller. Well, thank you for your message as well. Our phone number 0419832000, text or WhatsApp 0861800658 or email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, pretty staggering figures uh, published uh, by the Irish Daily Mail uh, this week. 196,729 hospital appointments cancelled in the first nine months of last year. That's almost 200,000 hospital appointments that were cancelled. Sinn Féin's spokesperson on health, David Cullinan, says it's further proof of the shifting of the burden from one part of the health service 
to another. Uh, and David Cullinan joins us now. And a very good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, what, what, what do you mean by that? Or, or can you explain why uh, any hospital appointment is cancelled? Because you'd imagine that they're all necessary and uh, people wouldn't want to forego their treatment. Well, I suppose the starting point is uh, why you have so many procedures being cancelled and we're talking about both inpatient and outpatient procedures. So it's hospital appointments, it's hospital procedures, in some cases it's cancer treatments which have been cancelled and the reason for it is very simple. If you look at what's happening in emergency departments where we have a surge in demand, where we have huge problems with patients on trolleys, massive overcrowding, we saw last week a record number for any hospital in Limerick with 150 people uh, on trolleys waiting for a bed. Uh, I spoke to some people who were actually working in that hospital, but also patients who were walking through to visit relatives and, and walking through trying to trying to get get across cord, uh, uh, trolleys after trolleys in in corridors, and it's it's really difficult for staff and obviously for patients. And the problem then, Michael, is when we have that level of overcrowding, the only option open to a hospital manager or one of the few options open to them is to cancel elective procedures and then use the recovery beds that would be uh, used for those purposes, for those who get very straightforward elective procedures, uh, then to use those beds for storage capacity. For, so it's for the hospitals who are cancelling the appointments? Hospitals are cancelling the appointments, but okay. hospital managers are doing it reluctantly because mm. it's the only option they have to deal with what's happening in the emergency departments. And the point I was making, Michael, yeah. is that we're, we're not dealing with the problems in the health service and emergency departments by putting in the additional beds and the capacity. And what we're actually doing and what the government is doing is shifting the problem from one part of the health service to the other. So while you might be able to somewhat uh, ameliorate what's happening in emergency departments by cancelling yeah. procedures. That's not without its consequences. And it means then that people have to have their appointments rescheduled. There's miscare. Uh, we know that people need to be seen as quick as possible in a timely mm-hmm. manner. It drives up waiting lists. And you're just moving the, the problem around rather than solving the problem. And what happens what if you need happen? to be rescheduled? Uh, do you go to the bottom of the list again? Or um, are you no, seen quicker than that? No, it's not, not so much a bottom of the list. It depends on, on the consultant and it depends on the pressures within that area. So I would imagine what happens, and my understanding is that you are rescheduled as soon as is possible. Most of these are planned appointments and most of them are planned procedures. Unfortunately, it has resulted in some more serious uh, surgeries having been cancelled as well. We see it in children's hospitals, for example, where there was wholesale cancellation of procedures, including for children waiting for spinal procedures, children with scoliosis and spina bifida. Mm. We saw it with chemotherapy where uh, cancer patients have had procedures cancelled. They're smaller in number in in terms of the overall number of cancellations. Well, 650 children uh, having their uh, chemotherapy uh, cancelled, according to the... Small in number, but it's important for each and every child. But uh, how do you delay chemotherapy or how do you delay... Uh, uh, operations for scoliosis. Uh, I mean, these things are very time-sensitive, aren't they? Absolutely. That's the point I'm making. Every procedure which is cancelled has its consequences. Now, I do know that when it comes to cancer cancellations, they are rescheduled very, very quickly. But the point is, even psychologically for the patient who has to gear up for the fact that they have to go for either chemotherapy or a child with scoliosis who is in for really difficult, really tough 
uh, yes, planned, but very complex surgeries. It's happened many a times where the child is prepped, is ready to go, and then the procedure is cancelled. And it's really traumatic on the child and their parents. So there's a number of things that need to happen and, and just focus on how do we solve this problem. The first thing to do is to properly sort out what's happening in emergency departments. And it isn't rocket science, and we've been talking about this for some time. The vast majority of hospitals simply don't have enough inpatient beds. If they don't have enough inpatient beds, they can't admit patients quickly enough. That's one of the problems. Minister Donnelly promised us 1,500 rapid bill beds a number of times last year. We now know that the funding isn't there to deliver it. There's also then a need to discharge patients safely who can be discharged into community step-down recovery convalescence beds. We also know we don't have enough of those. Uh, there was some commentary about that. You would have heard it over the last number of months about discharges and potentially forced discharges, which is not what you want. But you want people to be safely discharged when the alternatives are there. So we have to look at why we're having the crisis we're having in emergency departments. It's in part capacity in hospitals, but it's also in part what's happening outside of the hospitals where home care, community care, step-down recovery, convalescence care is not available. And then the only uh, course available or the only uh, um, pathway available for, for patients is to go to an emergency department. That's on that side of it. We also then had a promise under Shalonta Care of building four, three or four major elective-only hospitals, one for Galway, one for Cork, and one at least, if not two, for Dublin. And the logic of that is that you would be able to do, on scale, uh, in volume, high numbers of elective scheduled care outside of hospitals that also have unscheduled care. So you separate that clash between planned procedures and emergency care. And those hospitals are a long way away from completion. In fact, in the case of Dublin, they haven't even identified the sites. And this is four years into this government's term of office at this point. So we've had a, a snail's pace delivery of elective hospitals. In my view, that's the big reform that's needed to separate scheduled from unscheduled care. So unless we deal with all of those problems, Michael, in terms of what's happening in emergency departments and then separating that scheduled from unscheduled care, we're going to see more of what's happening at the moment, which, which is the only or one of the few options for a hospital manager at a time of crisis in emergency departments, which unfortunately now is all year round, is mm. to periodically and on a more regular basis cancel elective procedures. And that's really unfair mm. on pain. Oh, it's stressful. Yeah. The distress that goes mm. with, with hearing that your procedure is cancelled. Mm. Oh, it's, it's just, yeah. I, I, I don't know, it's a bit like housing. Um, We've been living with this crisis kind of forever. Um, the housing crisis is going on for more than 15 years. Um, this was declared a national emergency almost 20 years ago, back in 2006. Uh, Mary Harney at the time said she'd tackle it, um, that nobody would sleep on a trolley, nobody would spend more than 24 hours on a trolley. Uh, there would never be any more than 10 patients uh, on trolleys. Uh, this was at a, a time when there were 495 patients on trolleys. Enough is enough, the Minister for Health at the time said. Uh, it's a national emergency. We'll throw everything at it. And here we are now. Um, instead of 495 patients on trolleys right across the country in every hospital in the country, 150 patients in one hospital alone, as you said, in Limerick. Why is it eluding us for as long as it has? Well, two responses to that. The first is, as we speak today, there is a recruitment embargo in place in the health service 
where lots of staff cannot be replaced, staff that leave because of that recruitment embargo. And we can't recruit staff into the health service this year, even at the same rate that we were able to do for the last three years. That's the first problem. The second problem is those beds that I talked about, that the Minister promised, that were to be rapid build, built very quickly. Half of those 1,500, about 700, were to be delivered this year in 2024. That now won't happen, which means those hospitals who need those beds won't get them. So that's the first problem in relation to um, to all of that. The, the other issue is in relation to what's happening outside of the hospitals, and it's, it's, the, uh, it's, it's the community care and primary care. But it's not that this hasn't worked in some areas, and this is what really frustrates me, because I don't take the, the, the view that we can't solve these problems. These problems are a product of bad policy, bad government, lack of investment. But where it does work, and if you look at Waterford Hospital, and I gave this example before, and I, and I have a very good relationship with, it's my constituency, I have a very good relationship with the current manager and the previous manager who's now gone into the centre of, of the HSE. The first thing is that we got very significant additional beds during COVID. It was a new ward in the hospital, a new building, sorry, that opens that the first two floors have a new palliative care centre, but the top three floors had a very significant number of new inpatient single isolation room beds. So that helped. The second thing is that they developed a very good relationship relationship with community services. They put in the step down to recovery beds, the convalescent beds, as much as they could, contracted them from voluntary organisations as well. So that helped. The third thing was to have a relationship with the private hospital and where possible, including in elective procedures, but also in cancer care, utilise the capacity that was there for public patients. And then it was teamwork, um, including consultants, working um, out of hours, at weekends, on site, making decisions and being able to discharge patients. So all of those things were done. The current head of the HSE is now talking about a seven-day-a-week health service. So we have contracts that you do what's called five over five days over seven. Uh, so there is some moves in this area. My mm. point, Michael, is what happened in Waterford when all of those things were done? Good relationship with the private hospital, uh, putting the capacity into community care, having the bed capacity, having good teamwork. There wasn't one single patient on a trolley for three years. So then the question is, why isn't that happening everywhere else? Mm. And to be fair to managers in other hospitals, they don't have the bed capacity. They weren't given the same opportunities. So this isn't rocket science. And it can be done. It has proven that it can be done. And what we need to do is replicate that across every major acute hospital okay. in the country. Is it as bad uh, as you assume? Um, I'm reading in the Irish Times today that uh, the government uh, may uh, look at uh, the HSE's national service plan today, uh, but will do soon. Uh, and as the paper puts it, it sets out its annual roadmap for spending and service provision. Uh, but according uh, to the Irish Times, uh, the National Service Plan uh, will say that the numbers on trolleys and emergency departments fell by 8% last year and by 22% in the second half of this year compared with the same period last year. Well, the first response to that is that the HSE calculates how patients are on trolleys are not admitted admitted to a bed differently to the Irish Nurses and Midwives Organisation. So they don't count people who are, I suppose, what's called in surge beds. Um, and it's people who are put into wards, already overcrowded wards, left on a trolley in a ward as opposed to a corridor, and then that doesn't count. 
So there's a number of different ways in which they count trolleys, which is different to the Irish Nurses and Midwives Organisation. The only organisation that has a very consistent track record of counting the number of patients on trolleys is the Irish Nurses and Midwives Organisation and are the nurses on the ground. And they're the figures I trust. So yes, there is a variation in the HSE's figures, but even with the HSE's figures, they're still exceptionally high and the minister accepts that. But the head of the HSE, Bernard Gloucester, if you remember, just before Christmas, before the end of the year, when the budget was announced, essentially said that he can't write a national service plan that guarantees services or where the health service can come in on budget because of the funding for the health service for 2024. So I'm afraid the national service plan will be a work of fiction. It can make all the promises at once, but if the capacity and the resources aren't there, and it's also in the same article that you've read, a commitment now to reduce agency spend by $250 million. Mm. And I, for a long time, have been saying that we need to reduce agency spend. But if, you, if you're doing it at the time when you have a recruitment embargo in place, here is now the choice for managers and hospitals, including in your own constituencies, in Mead and Loud and, and, and elsewhere. A manager is going to have to make a decision. I have to cut agency staff. I can't fill positions because there were because there's a recruitment embargo and no tough decisions will have to be made yeah. on where they put staff. Okay. And that's not a good thing. Is that what's point. going to happen? Um, because I, I was confused uh, by the article because it says that they're uh, going to cut pay costs uh, by converting agency staff uh, to HSE employees. If they're cutting back on spending on agency staff, are they not going to recruit the same people? Well, that's not my understanding of it, and I'd, I'd want to see more detail in the service plan because my understanding of it is that there will be a ceiling put in place of how many staff that the health service can recruit for 2024, mm. and the figure that we've been given is 2,200. So compare that to the last three years, where on average the net increase into the health service has been about 6,500 staff. The problem at the moment is, and while there are some exemptions to the embargo in terms of consultants, and final year nursing graduates. There are huge areas like radiographers, healthcare assistants, uh, many other grades in hospitals which are not, which are part of the embargo. And then you go into community services, mental health services for older people. All of those teams in the community that provide care for people in the community or in the home, uh, all of those are affected by the recruitment embargo. So if the service plan says we're only going to recruit one third of what we were actually recruiting over the last number of years. That means that in all of those other grades uh, that were training people in training colleges to work in the public system, the vast majority of them will not have that opportunity. And whatever the National Service Plan says, what is a reality at the moment, because I speak to hospital managers, is that there are lots of positions that they can't fill, where staff have left, and where there's vacancies, and they can't fill them because of the embargo under recruitment freeze. That's the reality. Hmm. So the best thing the government could do is lift the embargo. I have no difficulty in putting a cap on the number of staff that we recruit, but it has to be at a level where at the very minimum we're recruiting staff that we're actually training, coming out of training colleges, that we're training people. Example, speech and language therapy, occupational therapy, all of those Mm -hmm. areas as well in terms of primary care and disability. There's some exemptions there, but not in all areas. And I have a real concern that the message that we're sending to those people who are training in those areas is there's no room in the public system to either go and work in the private sector or emigrate. 
and I don't think that's a good place for us to be in. All right, we'll leave it there. Thank you indeed for joining okay. us this morning. David Cullinan is Sinn Féin's spokesperson on health. Michael Reed on LMFM. Whether you think uh, Joe Biden is too old to be the American president or not, uh, or if his age and his frailty has impacted his memory or not, uh, there's one thing you can say about Mr. Biden. He was busy yesterday. We're promoting clean energy and industries of the future made here in America. Made in America. What I didn't realize, and I've been around, I know I don't look like it, but I've been around a while. I do remember that. All right, uh, that's uh, a one-liner that may be repeated or not uh, before uh, the decision is made as to who will be the next president of uh, the United States. But uh, the incumbent president, Joe Biden, as I say, was busy yesterday. He was uh, speaking at a rally in Washington uh, there. And before that, he was meeting with uh, the King of Jordan, King Abdullah. And uh, Mr. Biden was speaking about the Israeli offensive in Gaza. Too many of the over 27,000 Palestinians killed in this conflict have been innocent civilians and children, including thousands of children. And hundreds of thousands have no access to food, water, or other basic services. Many families have lost not just one, but many relatives and cannot mourn for them, even bury them, because they're not safe to do so. It's heartbreaking. Every innocent life in Gaza is a tragedy, just as every innocent life lost in Israel is a tragedy as well. We pray for those lives taken, both Israeli and Palestinian, and for the grieving families left behind. Not only do we pray for peace, we're actively working for peace, security, and dignity for both the Palestinian people and the Israeli people. And I'm working on this day and night with the king and others in the region, to find the means to bring all these hostages home, to ease the humanitarian crisis and to end the terror threat, and to bring peace to Gaza and Israel, enduring peace with the two-state solution for two peoples. All right, that's uh, Joe Biden talking the talk. The message for Europe, for America, was walk the walk. Let's be logical. How many times have you heard the most prominent leaders and foreign ministers around the world saying too many people are being killed. President Biden said this is too much on the top. It's not proportional. Well, if you believe that too many people are being killed, maybe you should provide less arms in order to prevent so many people being killed. It's not logical. Everybody goes to Tel Aviv begging, please, don't do that. Protect civilians. Don't kill so many. How many is too many? Which is the standard? But Netanyahu doesn't listen to anyone. They're going to evacuate. Where? To the moon? Where are they going to evacuate these people? So if the international community believes that this is a slaughter, that too many people are being killed, maybe they have to think about the provision of arms. That's uh, Joseph Burrell, but uh, instead of evacuating people to the moon out of Gaza, 
Back in the White House, Joe Biden was calling for a ceasefire. The United States is working on a hostage deal between Israel and Hamas, which would bring an immediate and sustained period of calm to Gaza for at least six weeks, which we could then take the time to build something more enduring. Right, uh, that's uh, the hope that there will be this six weeks ceasefire. In the meanwhile, everybody's thoughts are with the one and a half million people who are trapped in Rafah. As I said yesterday, our military operation in Rafah, the the major military operation in Rafah, should not proceed without a credible plan, a credible plan for ensuring the safety and support of more than one million people sheltering there. Many people there have been displaced, displaced multiple times, fleeing the violence to the north, and now they're packed into Rafah, exposed and vulnerable. They need to be protected. And we've also been clear from the start, we oppose any forced displacement of Palestinians from Gaza. The American president, Joe Biden, was giving a press conference alongside King Abdullah of Jordan. Unfortunately, one of the most devastating wars in recent history continues to unfold in Gaza as we speak. Nearly 100,000 people have been killed, injured, or are missing. The majority are women and children. We cannot afford an Israeli attack on Rafah. It is certain to produce another humanitarian catastrophe. The situation is already unbearable for over a million people who have been pushed into Rafah since the war started. We cannot stand by and let this continue. We need a lasting ceasefire now. This war must end. In Israel, uh, there doesn't seem to be much appetite for a ceasefire. There will be no ceasefire that leaves the Hamas terror regime in power or the hostages in Gaza. Right, and this is Israeli spokesperson Elon Levy, who was speaking yesterday. He was also speaking about the Israeli operation that took place in Rafah that uh, ended up in two hostages being released, or rescued, as the case may be. In a daring rescue operation deep in Rafah overnight, Israel successfully rescued two hostages, Luis Ha and Fernando Marman, both abducted by Hamas death squads from kibbutz near Yitzhak on October 7th. In a complex rescue mission under fire, the IDF, Israel Police and Shin Bet conducted a targeted raid in the heart of Rafah with aerial coverage to rescue the two hostages. In the early morning at 1.49 a.m., special forces breached a civilian building in Rafah and found the two hostages who were being helmed by armed terrorists in an apartment on the second floor. One minute after the building was breached, the Air Force and Southern Command activated aerial fire to enable the forces' disengagement and strike Hamas terrorists in the area. Yamam officers from the Israel Police Special Forces shielded the two hostages with their bodies until they could be extracted under fire accompanied by IDF forces. Following an initial medical examination by army doctors, the hostages were airlifted by helicopter for medical treatment at the Sheba Medical Center near Tel Aviv, where they were reunited with their families. Well, there were no apologies from Israel yesterday, and Mr. Levy had this message for the rest of the world. We wish to make an urgent appeal to the international community. It is time for you to help protect civilians in Gaza from the Hamas terrorists who are trying to use them as human shields. Since the start of this war, 
that Hamas launched, Israel has employed extensive measures to protect civilians in Gaza from their own leaders' evil attempts to keep them in the line of fire. From millions of warnings to humanitarian corridors secured by our forces to targeted raids that put our men in harm's way, those measures have brought the civilian-to-combatant ratio in Gaza down to around one-to-one, unprecedented in the history of warfare. At every turn, however, we have been stymied by UN agencies, more concerned with pressuring Israel to end the war with Hamas still standing than to protect civilians. They have resisted our efforts to vacate civilians from Hamas strongholds, libelously characterizing those measures in pursuance of our obligations under international law as forced displacement. They share immense culpability for the tragic loss of life that could have been avoided if the world had worked with us to thwart the Hamas human shield strategy. In covering up Hamas's militarization of hospitals and its military assets inside UN facilities, including that Sova farm and intelligence hub located literally underneath UNRWA's headquarters in Gaza. International officials have been telling Israel to give immunity to Hamas targets. In telling Israel not to attack because civilians will be hurt, but then resisting efforts to get civilians out of harm's way, they have rendered themselves complicit with Hamas's human shield strategy and told it that that strategy works and to keep going. The United Nations and international actors now face a fateful choice. Do they want to save Hamas or save Palestinian civilians? They cannot stop Israel from dismantling the last four Hamas battalions in the Gaza Strip and securing the release of the 134 remaining hostages after the October 7 massacre. But the decisions they make now can still protect civilians from the war that Hamas has brought on them. The Prime Minister has instructed the Israel Defense Forces to present a plan for the evacuation of civilians from Rafah because we do not want to see civilians being hurt. And we still have excess capacity at Israeli crossings to more than double the amount of food, water, medicine and shelter equipment entering Gaza. We urge UN agencies to cooperate with Israel's efforts to protect civilians from Hamas and evacuate them from a war zone where terrorists are trying to use them as human shields. Don't say it can't be done. Work with us to find a way. It is beyond regrettable that instead of cooperating with Israel's efforts since Hamas launched this war, UN agencies have been funneling civilians into Hamas strongholds and playing along and validating the Hamas human shield strategy. That must stop. Yesterday, the Prime Minister spoke with our friend and ally, President Biden. We welcome the statement from the White House that the United States shares our goal to see Hamas defeated and to ensure long-term security for Israel and its people. The war that Hamas started with the October 7th massacre will continue until we have achieved all three of our goals, destroying Hamas, releasing all the hostages, and ensuring that Gaza never again pose a threat to the people of Israel. This war can come to a swift conclusion, with no more suffering, if Hamas surrenders immediately, lays down its arms, releases the hostages, and hands over its war criminals for a tribunal. And all actors interested in protecting civilian lives and improving humanitarian conditions in the Gaza Strip must demand that Hamas surrender now instead of lobbying to keep Hamas's last four battalions on their feet 
in the face of an impending Israeli victory to restore security for our people in the wake of the bloodiest massacre of Jews since the Holocaust. It's the end of today's update. We'll now take any questions you have. All right, there you go. That's uh, Elon Levy, Israeli spokesperson, speaking yesterday and listening to what he had to say. I think it's uh, probably true to say that if he is representing the Israeli position and they hold firm, well, the idea of a ceasefire as things stand is uh, nothing other than a pipe dream. Uh, And, of course, we were hearing there about how Israeli armed uh, defence forces rescued two people Uh, But Mr. Levy omitted uh, to mention how they killed about 100 other people in the process of doing that. Uh, It's all very hard to understand, isn't it? Uh, But as I say, it appears as though there's no immediate end in sight. Michael Reed on LMFM. Time now, as as usual, around this time on a Tuesday for our weekly visit to the Garda Crime Desk. As usual, there's a, a number of incidents Gardaí are investigating locally, and perhaps you can assist with uh, those investigations. Garda Ethan Fitzpatrick joins us for this week's report from Dulik Garda Station, and thank you indeed uh, for doing so. So we're going to begin in Dundalk uh, and a burglary that happened almost a, a fortnight ago in Sandfield. Yes, good morning, Michael. Uh, Gardy and RD are investigating a burglary which occurred on Friday the 2nd of February between 6.30 and 7.30pm in Sandfield, Corcraghy County Loud. The suspects gained entry to a dwelling via the front door and a quantity of jewellery and other items were taken. Gardy are currently canvassing the area for CCTV footage and conducting house-to-house inquiries and believe three males to be involved. Gardaí are particularly interested in a silver old-style Audi that may have been in the area around this time. So if you're in the vicinity of Corcraghy at this time on Friday the 2nd of February or noted anything suspicious or have any information regarding this crime, please contact RD Gardaí on 041-685-3222 or the Garda Confidential Line on 1800-666-1. OK, to Drogheda next and a burglary at a business park in the town. This happened on Monday night, Tuesday morning of last week. Yeah, so Gardaí and Drogheda are investigating a burglary which occurred in the early hours of Tuesday the 6th of February, approximately between 1 and 6 at the East Coast Business Park, Drogheda. So access was gained to a number of containers in the industrial estate and numerous electronic items, cash and CCTV equipment was taken. So Gardaí are conducting ongoing inquiries into this incident but are appealing to anyone who may have been in the area of the East Coast Business Park on Tuesday the 6th of February between the hours of 1am and 6am or may have noticed anything suspicious or information regarding this crime to please contact Drogheda the Garda station on 041 987-4200 or the Garda Confidential Line on 1800-666-1. Next to the very tragic death of a young man in Ashburn on Friday, you're appealing for witnesses. Yeah, Garda at Ashburn Garda Station are investigating a fatal road traffic collision which occurred at approximately 9.30pm on Friday the 9th of February on the N2 at Ashburn. The collision involved a lorry and a pedestrian and unfortunately the pedestrian, a male in his 20s, was pronounced dead at scene. So Gardaí are appealing to anyone who may have witnessed this incident or especially anyone who may have dash cam footage from the N2 Ashburn around 9.30pm on Friday the 9th of February to please contact Ashburn Garda Station on 01801600 or the Garda Confidential Line on 1800-666-1. Next to a burglary that uh, occurred at the Newtown Centre in Ashburn over the weekend. 
Yeah, Gardaí and Ashburn are investigating the burglary which occurred on Saturday the 10th of February, approximately between the hours of 11pm Saturday and 2am Sunday morning. So a male entered the centre by breaking a glass panel at the rear of the centre and a number of claw-style vending machines were damaged and numerous electronic items were taken. So Gardaí are appealing to anyone who may have been in the vicinity of the Newtown Centre on Saturday night the 10th of February that may have noted anything suspicious or any information regarding the crime, to please contact Ashburn Garda Station again on 01801600 or the Garda Confidential Line on 1800-666-1. Next uh, to uh, a warning for our listeners uh, who may be hoping uh, for a card or something else from a secret admirer. Yeah, I suppose it's the day that's in it tomorrow, Valentine's Day, I'd just like to remind listeners to be vigilant in relation to romance fraud it's something that's been on the rise in recent years. So this particular fraud is enabled via online dating sites or other social media by fraudsters who would provide the victim with kind of well-prepared stories designed to deceive. So the victims develop an online relationship with the fraudsters who use fake identities or photographs or life stories and inevitably the fraudster will ask the victim for money and will continue to ask until the victim has no more money or they realise they're being conned. So this crime often leaves vulnerable people with a feeling of hurt and mistrust and obviously financial loss. So the Gardaí have issued a bit of advice to the public to stop and think, ask yourself, is this person real? If you're asked for money by a person with whom you're in an online relationship, to never share personal or banking details with unknown persons online, never receive money from or send money to persons unknown. Trust your instincts. So if it sounds like it's too good to be true, it's probably not true. And if in doubt, talk to a family member or friend. And just lastly, if you've been a victim of this type of crime, to please contact your local Garda station and report. Indeed. All right, thank you indeed. Uh, Garda Ethan Fitzpatrick of Dulique Garda Station. We return to the Garda Crime Desk in around the same time on next Tuesday's programme. Before we leave you today, some of uh, the comments I haven't got to as yet. Uh, a text from somebody who says, Good morning, Michael. My husband ended up in Our Lady of Lourdes two weeks ago with a significant blood clot in his leg. We thought we were doing the right thing by ringing an ambulance because we suspected that it was a blood clot and we knew how dangerous that can be. To make a long story short, they took him from the ambulance and put him sitting on a chair in severe pain and he was left there for 18 hours before he was seen at all and then they took bloods which took another two hours uh, to kind of telling us that they suspected the blood clot but then we had to wait to get an ultrasound so it was nearly 24 hours before he was diagnosed and then they gave him an injection to start to help dissolve it then we were sent home with a prescription so he didn't even get a, a trolley it was mayhem so sad in this day and age to go through this in our country thank you indeed uh, that has to be the final word our time has run out we'll come to some of those other comments that I didn't get to maybe on tomorrow's programme thanks though if you were in touch that's all we have time for as I say Maggie Maguire Research Chris Murray was in the control tower I'm Michael and God willing we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM good morning bye bye The Michael Reed Show podcast tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM to contact us email now michael at lmfm.ie